Hello, humans of the internet. Do you like hockey? How many 10-minute misconducts will we see tonight? Well, we shall see. My name is Dave Block. And I'm Scott McIntyre. And we are just another hockey podcast, after all. Uh, Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review Just Another Hockey Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And uh, yes, Game 3, we are right on the eve of that uh, as we record literally less than an hour before uh, opening puck drop for Game 3 in uh, Sunrise, Florida of the Stanley Cup Final. Uh, Basically a do-or-die game for the Panthers, uh, being that they are down... 0-2 0-2 in the series, uh, in Vegas kind of handling things quite easily thus far in this uh, series with uh, the Panthers in the Stanley Cup final. I know that we are kind of anticipating that this would be a pretty well-played, evenly matched final, and that's uh, not quite been the case, wouldn't you say? No, uh, Florida is being, I hate to even say out Florida by Vegas, but they're definitely not drawing into the stuff that Florida did to get the other teams off their game. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a very good way to put it. So being the anti Florida, but with more skill, way more skill. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. So I know one of the things that was brought up prior to this series starting, uh, knowing the, you know, the, the size and the abilities of the blue line core for Vegas, but also the fact that uh, Vegas has been strong with rolling all four lines uh, at this time. And uh, uh, Vegas is getting contributions from all four lines uh, and Florida is just getting completely shut down, bogged down. Uh, you know, Vegas is kind of uh, neutralizing uh, that Florida attack that was uh, so uh opportunistic uh, in series against both uh, Toronto and Carolina. I guess you could say the Boston series too. Yeah. I mean, you're just watching the games in Vegas is they're precise. They're, they just, they've, they're playing with so much confidence that you see it in everything they do. Their, their passes out of the zone. They, they're not mm-hmm. panicking. Uh, you know, they're, in the scrums, the scrums that Florida wants them to get into, they they're getting into them. They're not like shying away, but they're also not taking that extra jab or poke that Florida seems to be. And uh, you saw it in the first game with I think it was Hag who's being headlocked, and then Kachuk just hauls off and punches him with his glove on, and that was the end. Uh, well, it wasn't the end of Kachuk's night, but he got a 10-minute misconduct for it. Uh, and rightfully so. I mean, there was a big scrum going on. The refs, you could see the refs telling guys to break it up, move along, and just, they're just not giving up. They're not giving up. And Florida kept kind of keeping it going. And then Kachuk takes that pot shot on a guy who's very clearly in a headlock and not engaging at all. You just see it. Florida's kind of losing their cool, and they're 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 trying too hard. I think it is. Yeah, a little bit of squeezing the stick, and uh, yeah, the poise that Vegas has shown when Florida has been doing the things to try to get under the Golden Knights' skin again. Particularly, uh, you you reference Kachuk, and uh, again, he's got three ten minute misconducts already in this series in particular and just with the way the things ended in uh, game two with uh there's what eight 
skaters that Florida had left between uh, the injury to Radko Gudas, uh, who's apparently going to be in the lineup tonight from the sounds of things. And then uh, the, the myriad of uh, misconducts at the end when uh, things were just so out of hand in that seven, two victory that, uh, you know, all of the, all the shit started starting and uh, you know, this is where I'm going to give hats off to the officials for not putting up with that shit. All right. You're going to try this. You're gone. You're gone. You're gone. So I think, I think this is a time where the officials need to be praised. We've been trashing the officials all playoff long. So this is where you again, a little stick tap, uh, you know, doff the helmet to uh, saying enough's enough. Hit, hit the showers. Well, and, a lot of guys gave the NHL the official shit over the second misconduct Kachuk took, um, saying it was for nothing. Which, to me, yeah, he knocked the guy's stick out of his hand and scrum. But you, you don't know what the officials are telling these players. Are you know? Are they warning them? Don't do anything. Like we're done, guys. We're all done. Like. Stop it. Knock it off. Let's go. And then you get a guy who does one more thing. And mm-hmm. it, it the, the calls have been pretty tight. Um, not a huge complaint on things that are and aren't being called. Kind of surprised how tight they are calling it. But, you know, again, these refs, especially guys like Kachuk and Gudis and all these. I hate to pick on Florida, but mostly the Florida guys. They are known for going into these scrums and evening up calls and or pulling a guy out. Maybe you know, maybe they take a call, but they're taking somebody with them. Mm-hmm. So the refs have been trained through these playoffs to watch for that. You know, you you saw it kind of you they use it to their advantage in Boston against the Toronto team and against Carolina and they ain't working here. Part of that is, you know, Vegas, they're not jumping in on stuff. Um, and then, uh, also, you know, again, but the rest are also looking for these guys to start stuff and they're not allowing it to start. Absolutely. And you know, to, to your point, had they let things slide with Kachuk, uh, you know, was, is, is what he uh, knocked uh, a Vegas player stick out of his hand when he got the uh, the second uh, misconduct uh, while there was a stoppage of play uh, the, just amidst this whole uh, fracas and scrum that's going on all around them. And, uh, you know, if they don't do it, then you mean what sort of shenanigans uh, ensue later on? Because we know Kachuk's reputation. Right. And, you know, Maurice kind of said today that uh, he feels like his team, the Panthers, have been a little too physical. And I think he quoted a stat that 66 hits in a game. And I, I kind of agree with them. You don't need to be physical. But Vegas has that mark of a team that you want to play a skilled game, they'll play a skilled game. You want to play a rough and tumble game, they'll rough it up with you. And you want to play a slow, bog it down, grind it out game, they'll do that too. That's the mark of a championship caliber team. And Florida has shown the capabilities to change how they play, but I don't think they can change on the fly like Vegas can. Uh, you know, they, they, they figured out Boston and they beat them. They figured out Toronto and they beat them and they figured out the cans and they beat them. But I don't think they could do it in a game on the fly like Vegas can. 
And to your point regarding the hits there, I mean, if you're easily outpacing your opponents in hits per game, that's not a great sign for your team because that most likely means that you're chasing your opponent because they've got the puck at that point. You know, you're trying to separate them from the puck. And uh, I mean, puck position, puck possession is what wins games, uh, plain and simple. And, uh, you know, to that point, again, the thing that everybody was talking about after game two was the big open ice hit that Matthew Kachuk had on Jack Eichel. And, uh, you know, there's been much talk, much debate about, uh, you know, was it a clean hit? Uh, was it not a clean hit? And uh, I think the the jury is out that uh, you know it it was, you know, a hard physical hit that was very much legal. Again, unfortunate with the way that uh, Eichel kind of was, uh, you know, falling into Kachuk for the hit there with a little bit of a toe pick that he had. Uh, but, and it's, it's just a hit that we don't see in this game very often, uh, you know, referencing the uh, athletic article where uh, Pierre Lebrun was talking about, uh, uh, talking about that particular hit with a ton of other uh, NHLers past and present. And uh, Mike Madonna, former Dallas Stars captain, uh, making mention, uh, you know, during the 99 playoff run, uh, there were, uh, you know, 40 of those hits, uh, you know, in the entirety of the playoffs there, that it just, it's a different way that the game is played now than the way that it was 20, 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, when you see a hit of that magnitude, I mean, I think the instant inclination is that, wow, that had to have been illegal or a dirty play. But, uh, in this instance, it very much wasn't, was it a necessary hit to make? Not especially, but, uh, you know, Kachuk's a player that goes out, each and every game trying to make a statement. And uh, that was his way of doing it. And again, hats off to Jack Eichel for uh, uh, acknowledging that the hit was clean after the game. But uh, again, thankfully he was able to come back to the game for the start of the third period. Yeah. Kind of going back to the article, just the headline LeBron used for that, you know, this is going to be a hit. It's going to be talked about for ages. I didn't read the article because I totally disagree with that um, headline. I think that hit, you can't even say if it was clean or dirty because Eichel tripped going into Kachuk. And Kachuk still hit him, I, I'm going to say fairly clean. But again, you can't say it was dirty or clean because Eichel very clearly, people call it a toe pick, whatever, you know, he. He tripped, toe-picked, fell into the hit. So that takes all onus off Kachuk. Uh, he was coming in in a clean style. His elbow was tucked. He was hunched down. He was braced for the hit. He wasn't. didn't seem to be extending into it or anything. So I got to believe it was going to be a clean hit. Yeah. It was going to be a violent hit for sure. Mm-hmm. But those are legal. Uh, oh, yes. So this whole conversation about this hit, just needs to stop because it, it it's hockey. There are hitting, there's hitting in hockey. And I just think that people, I, there's a lot of stuff in hockey that I don't think should be in hockey anymore. Head hits being one of them. Mm-hmm. I think that hit Truba had on uh, Timo Meyer was a dirty, should have been illegal hit by the letter of the law. It was legal but it was dirty and I don't think it should be allowed this hit because of Eichel's failed skating, basically 
made it impossible for Kachuk to hit him clean, but he still mostly did. So, to me, this you, stop talking about this hit. It was a I don't want to say a failed hit, but it was definitely a hit gone wrong on Eichel's side, not Kachuk's. <laughs> and I think, too, in a few games' time, it, yeah, this hit might be talked about, but it's not going to be something you remember two or three years down the road like LeBron tried to make it sound. Yeah, I think there, his, his uh, title for the article was definitely a little bit on the clickbaity sort of side there with uh, kind of uh, trying to pitch it as a, uh, was it clean? Was it not uh, sort of a thing? And uh, you know, the lead up being, you know, every player that he interviewed for the article all said, you know, I saw no problem with it there. I mean, yeah, it was brutal. It was vicious. It was uh, incredibly punishing, but uh, was it a clean hit there? It was unanimous with that. And yeah, as far as whether it's going to be talked about for generations to come, I highly doubt it, but I think just the narrative of that being built up just because of uh, Eichel's history with his neck injury, you know, having had the, uh, the radical surgery for the, uh, the herniated disc replacement in his neck, uh, just, uh, it just did not look good. Um, uh, oh, I thought he separated his shoulder. Yeah. I thought his shoulder was blown up. Yeah. Yeah. Given that it was just close enough to the head. I mean, that's just instantly when people were going to think, but yeah, principal contact was the shoulder and it looked bad enough because, you know, he skated under his own power and uh, yeah, separated shoulder was exactly what it looked like. And thankfully, again, he was able to come out and play in the, the third period and uh, again, had a magnificent uh, assist on a goal by Jonathan Marchessault to just extend the lead and make the blowout all the more. So, so again, can't stop, won't stop, uh, you know, trying to hit Jack Heichel again. He He's making it happen. And uh, how about Mark Stone in beast mode? Did you, I mean, I'm sure you know, but the, sh- quote unquote, the shift where he broke his stick, <laughs> laid out Montour, picked up a stick, and then had the primary set. I mean, yep. that, that's just, if you look, that's just Vegas's whole playoff run is plays like that. And, and mm-hmm. that's, you need those plays to, to win the cup because a little bit of, of it is luck. But you also got to put yourself in the position to take advantage of that luck. And, I mean, going back even to game one where Stone knocked that puck out of the air, like right on the edge of, of being too high. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just raw skill and talent and just awareness. And Vegas has in droves right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just cue the the sounds of you know this is this is a player that plays in all three zones. You know, he, he <laughs> plays the way that hockey is meant to be played. So uh, that sort of thing, and you know, they're, they're, that's not wrong to say that about him. But uh, you know, it's just uh, plays like that uh, are the things that will elevate you to be in the position to win the Stanley cup at that point. Uh, and that's uh, and, and, and plays like that too. Also uh, that's the kind of stuff that makes the, the highlight reels year after year after year and gets put into those uh, Stanley cup promotional commercials. Yeah. I mean, again, it's the whole playoff run for Vegas and Florida too, until these last two games has been, very storybook. Mm-hmm. So with your take here with Mukshiv, as we shift the attention out of goaltending there. So obviously Sergei Bobrovsky getting pulled in game two, he'll be back in that tonight for game three. Uh, 
from your viewpoint as a as a goaltender, uh, what are you seeing that uh, Bobrovsky's not doing uh, versus what he was doing in the other series? Or is it just simply a case where the rest between the end of the Carolina series and the start of the series with Vegas, uh, was that just too much rust for him? Uh, again, being the beer league all-star goalie that I am, uh, that rests. I mean, there is nothing like a game mode. I mean, the, the adrenaline's different. The feel's different. The competitive nature, everything's different. And to go that long without seeing game mode hockey, I I think Bob lost the, the, the touch of the puck. Uh, but at the same time, Vegas is very much exploiting a lot of the things throughout. You look at the series against Toronto and the series against uh, Carolina, and everyone's saying the same thing. you got to take his eye, any goalie in the NHL, and I, I hate when people say, oh, this is a great goalie, you just got to take his eye. Any goalie, you got to take their eyes away. Yeah. And Vegas is pulling. Yeah. yeah. Vegas is doing a, a phenomenal job of they're not posting up so much in front of him like uh, like normal screens. They're doing those cross-vision screens where as the guys, just as the guy's releasing the puck, the guy goes across. Whether it's uh, they're pulling the defenseman into his line sight, or Vegas guys crossing in, and they, you know they're they're flying through screens. They're not your traditional post up. I'm standing right in front of you screen. Now they have had a few of those goals. Mark Stone screened Bob incredibly well. Uh, so it's just it, it's it's a combination of Vegas exploiting. Bob's weaknesses where he's he is he's covering up he covers up down low period mm-hmm. and, and almost any goalie this day and age down low they're going to cover it up uh but you gotta snipe on him you gotta you gotta throw it in a corner on the net and that's what they're doing you watch they're they're ta- they're shooting off the ice it's coming off the ice then they are getting those cross uh, those skating screens that cut his vision just in the you know just a little bit, and the way these guys shoot, losing the sight of the puck for just a little bit—it's all it takes. Mm-hmm. And we've also we would be remiss without uh, making mention of just how brilliantly Aiden Hill has been playing there. I mean, he's been playing like Bobrovsky played in the first three series uh, for Florida at this point. Uh, oh, and yeah. this series for Vegas. So you know, credit where credits due. I mean, that's another thing, too. You, you, you look at Aiden Hill playing. Is he been phenomenal? Uh, he's been really good. I, I don't want to say phenomenal because he's not Conn Smythe award-winning great. But he's definitely making saves he shouldn't make, making saves he has to make, mm. and then just making sure to keep – he's just so steady and he's so loose you just watch him play he's so loose and and part of that and most of that rather is because of how vegas is playing they are as a team they're loose and that just makes you know the less you think on the ice as a goalie the and the more you just react and you're just in the zone the the better off you are and that's where aiden hill is right now he's just in the zone he's reacting he's reading plays and just letting his goalie instincts take over 
you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, iconic plays that, uh, you know, will get replayed for years and years to come. You know, I think that paddle save that Hill makes at the start of the second period on Nick Cousins, I think that could very well be one of those plays. And I think you could make the argument that that was the play that had kind of swung the momentum of the series in Vegas's favor. Yeah, and people gave Aiden Hill a little bit of crap for that. Oh, it's a it's a desperation save. He got lucky. Yes, and that is that is a good point. But there, if you you got to watch the whole play because there's a couple cross crease passes or a couple. Uh, they call it the Royal Road. You 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 draw a line between both posts on one end to the other end. And typically, if you cross that with the puck and you make the goalie move, your chances of scoring a goal increase. And there was a several times in that play where that puck crossed that Royal Road, and he stayed with the play. He didn't give up, which is a big one. And he got a lot of help from Petrangelo. He made the initial save. Yes. But a Panther was right there, ready to, I think it was Sam Bennett, ready to knock it back in. And that's when Petrangelo came in. So not giving up on the play. And there is a little bit of uh, thought process behind this. If you listen to um, Kevin Woodley, who does a lot of talk, like that he's uh, in goal magazine is what he does. That's all he does is talk goalies, research goalies, all that. And there is a little bit of truth to the fact that he says when you're making, when you have to make a desperation save, cover the middle of that as best as possible because a shooter doesn't want to be embarrassed by going high on the, on the corners and missing the corner. They want to put that puck right in the meat of the net. So that's where you need to cover when you're covering, when you're throwing out desperation saves, put yourself in the most middle of the net as you can. And in this play, that was Aiden Hill. If, and I think it was Bennett who tried to push it in. If he actually shoots this puck, it's in the net, but he doesn't. He tries to just tap it in the open net and that gives Hill time to reach back, get some weight on his stick to put it in the way and stop that puck. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, an amazing save. And uh, like I said, I think potentially something that may have swung the series in Vegas's favor at this point in time. So, so as we head into a uh, game three, again, uh, it's uh, less than an hour away from opening face off. Do we see Florida winning this to make it a series or uh, is Vegas going to extend the lead to three zero? I Florida is going to win one game here. I think they're, they're going to win one game, whether it's this game or the next game. Cause I mean, desperation's a, a hell of a motivator mm-hmm. um, and they're it's getting clock is getting close to midnight here for the Panthers. So um, whether again, whether this game or next and they've got advantage home ice advantage, they got last change. So in theory, they can get the matchups they want, which from the last two games I saw, there's not really a matchup you really do want. Um, but I, I just, I, again, I think the, I think midnight's coming closer these guys. So I, I got them winning a game, but not, they're not going to get back into the series. Yeah. 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 I think that, uh, you know, th- this game will hinge a lot on uh, whether this series uh, becomes the, the matchup that we anticipated that it was going to be, or it would be extended to six, seven games. Uh, like, I, like I know we were both thinking, uh, 
and whether it becomes you know a Vegas sweep or a Vegas gentleman sweep at this point, because uh, right now again Vegas is rolling on all cylinders, and the fact that the, there was the two day game break from game two to game three, uh, I think that very much works into a uh, Florida's favor uh, again, helping Gudas to get healthy and uh, to kind of stunt that uh, that Vegas momentum at this point. So yeah. Well, yeah, I just again, I, I don't see how Florida does this. I mean, they the, the they've had some streaks in these games. I mean, if you look to the they outshot Vegas in these two games combined, which is true. But score effects aren't a thing, and Vegas I think has only been behind for minutes. Uh, that was in game one, so very early on. So yeah. And Vegas is just, they're just rolling firing on all cylinders and absolute wagon right now. I mean, it's, it's hard to see them losing this series, but you know, we've counted the Panthers down and out before in this playoff. So again, that, that's why they play the games again. We'll find out uh, when faceoff takes place. And uh, again, it's, about a half an hour from now as we're recording. But uh, of course, by the time that uh, all of you listeners are hearing this, uh, you know, game three will be long over by that point. So <laughs> just the way that uh, things work with uh, the recording process. So, so the final still underway. Uh, of course, lots of other things happening across the national hockey league this past week. Uh, and uh, of course, the center of the hockey universe, uh, kind of at the center of the uh, attention slash controversy, I guess, however you want to phrase it here. But I think a couple of the worst secrets uh, in all of Canada came true this past week as uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs uh, hired former Calgary Flames general manager Brad Shree Living as the new general manager to replace the uh, disposed of Kyle Dubas at this point. Uh, so Shree Living going from one Canadian franchise to another, uh, you know, basically going from, uh, you know, you know, the, the pot to the, to the fire at this point, uh, he thought that the media pressures of Calgary were bad enough. Uh, you know, he's going to have to live into the microscope of, uh, of the Toronto media. And, uh, you know, he's bringing along Shane Doan to help him out, who was, uh, uh, somebody in the, uh, the Phoenix organization, the Arizona coyotes, uh, when uh, tree living was the, general manager of their AHL squad at that time, kind of where he made his name. So uh, you think that that was a a plan to try to help uh, keep Austin Matthews in in Toronto? Uh, It definitely smacks of uh, a team that's worried Austin Matthews might leave Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, Matthews has said all the right things in, uh, in the media saying he doesn't want, to leave he loves toronto and all that stuff Uh, again the words are the correct words i guess you'd say Mm -hmm. um but um i just i think they're they're worried about it too much because money talks and austin matthews kind of strikes me right or wrong as the guy who's going to chase the money maybe a little bit more than the cup yeah, there's no doubt that uh, his next uh, paycheck after this coming season's contract expires there, he's going to be north of 13 million. He will be the highest paid player in the National Hockey League, uh, whether it's wearing a Toronto Maple Leafs uniform or somebody else at this point. He'll be the highest paid player up until uh, 
Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid become uh, UFAs uh, in two and three years, respectively. Yeah, I mean, it, so here's the thing, too. It's weird because they say the, the reports mostly from Friedman are Matthews wants to sign someone a five-year deal, which is fine. I mean, you don't have to sign an eight-year deal, no. but... The cap is not going up this year, but supposedly next year it's going up by a significant amount. And then again, the following year, another significant amount. And that's why you saw, you know, kind of break on some other news. Uh, Gavrikov only signed a two-year deal because he's going to get this year, which is kind of cap locked. And then next year, which is going to open up. And then when he's a free agent again, it's going to be wide open. So I'm kind of surprised that, uh, Matthews has let it be known he kind of wants a five-year deal, not a two- or three-year deal. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, I mean, I mean, he's going to get his money one way or the other, but if you know the true goal is to maximize his earnings, uh, I mean, you hit it right on the head that uh, you'd think that he would be opting for something shorter term, uh, one, two, even three years uh, versus five. But, uh, you know, I, I certainly think from a Toronto standpoint, I mean, you, you want to lock him up for as many years as possible, uh, whatever it takes. But uh, you, know, you made mention of, uh, you know, Austin Matthews saying all the right things. I mean, the whole core four saying all of the right things, uh, you know, after the end of the uh, the playoff uh debacle where they uh, were just so humiliated by uh, by Florida, you know, from Tavares, from Marner, from Nylander. Uh, you know who else uh, was saying all the right things uh, where he used to play? Johnny Gaudreau in Calgary. So uh, somebody that, uh, you know, made the gave the impression that uh, he was going to stay in Calgary and uh, True Living couldn't sign him. So, yeah, I guess. And I think that's really something that uh, gives, I think, a lot of Toronto fans a lot of uh, a lot of pause, a lot of cause for concern that, uh, you know, his track record isn't exactly shining when it comes to maintaining and keeping these superstar players. And uh, with with two big names in Matthews and Nylander uh, looming to free agency at the end of next season, you know, they want to get those guys locked up to extensions, how they're actually going to go about doing that. Again, that's, that's a, that's a whole other problem altogether. So yes, you're right. Tree living did let Goudreau walk for nothing in free agency, but the next guy who made it known, he wasn't going to sign in Carolina or uh, Calgary. He traded him. And that guy is a uh, Matthew Kachuk. So right. can you call it lesson learned? Yeah, but you also can't force a guy to you know to sign a deal. And the year that uh, Johnny Gaudreau was finishing up, he had a fantastic year. The Calgary Calgary Flames had a fantastic year. Yes, they made they it to the second round of the playoffs. Uh, two, three, forty goal scorers on the team. One of them was Gaudreau, I think. Um, well, that whole line there, Lindholm, yeah. and uh, Gaudreau, they, they were arguably the best line in hockey uh, right. last season, the year before. Yeah. So, you know, if the guy says he wants to kind of ride it out, you let that guy ride it out. Now, on the flip side, I'm also vehemently against when players say, I don't want to negotiate during the year because you you don't negotiate. That's why you have an agent. Let the agent negotiate during the year. You know, yeah. don't don't play this game that you're sitting at the negotiating table with the GM and you're you're not the agents there. So it kind of comes back to if the guy doesn't want to sign, he's not going to sign. 
And when you're having the year Johnny Goudreau's having and your team's on the verge of potentially making a deep playoff run, you don't trade Johnny Goudreau. You ride it out. No. So, I mean, look at Yarmo Kekalainen in Columbus. He had Bob, Panarin, and I can't remember. Yeah, Duchesne, who were all having great years, and they were all going to be free agents, and they all... Bob and Panera and I know for sure were very wishy-washy about whether they were going to sign. They were going, oh, well, you know, we got to let the agents talk. Duchesne was pretty much going to leave. Well, um, he wanted to be in Nashville all along. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they kept those players because they had a chance to make a deep playoff run. Mm-hmm. You can't. You're, you're in the middle of a good season for them. They're showing their, their skills. You can't just up and trade him because now you're the guy who traded uh, such and such a player having a career year. And now there's no win. You're, you're in a no-win situation. Mm-hmm. Can we agree that uh, when a player says that, uh, you know, we I don't do negotiations uh, during the season, uh, the year that they're getting ready to go UFA, that, that's basically just code for I'm going to UFA status. Uh, for the most part, I mean, there's been some players who say that and they sign. I mean, look at uh, Steven Stamkos. I mean, he walked right up to a few minutes of free agency and signed. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, it definitely I would lean that way as a GM. If they say I don't negotiate during the year, I, I immediately go, well, they don't want to be here. And I need to make a move to ensure I get something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, going to be tricky to try to make that work. But uh, again, this year's cap, not especially going up very high. It's only projected to be a million uh, increase in the the cap ceiling. But again, next year, again, the the likelihood that uh, they can pay Matthews and Nylander, retain both of them, uh, and give, especially Nylander, the hefty raise that he's going to be commanding, the Leafs will definitely be able to stomach that a little bit more because, I mean, it's been made so clearly that uh, the how much the core is commanding out of their cap that, uh, I mean, they're going to struggle to field the remaining roster at this point. I mean, that, that I think, is going to be uh, another big challenge that uh, True Living is going to have, given the number of UFAs that they have. Samsonov is an RFA. What to do with uh, Matthew Murray at this point? Uh, again, it sounds like they've pretty much solidified that uh, Sheldon Keefe is going to be back to coach this year. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's there's a lot on Tree Living's plate. Uh, and we haven't even covered that uh, the draft is just around the corner in a couple of weeks, too. So, Well, and one last thing, and I know we've said it before, all those players were signed thinking the cap was going to go up. Yes. With the pandemic and all that happening, which no one could have planned for, that really threw a a wrench in the gears there. And you can't, if you blame Kyle Dubas for that, you, you really have no touch of reality. Absolutely not. Cause nobody predicted and saw the pandemic coming and having the world just completely shut down plain and simple. Uh, I mean, it was a, it was a calculated move uh, on Dubas's part, which I think any other GM with any kind of uh, analytic credibility would have done the exact same thing. And you know, it didn't quite uh, work to that exact edge that uh, Dubas was going for, but uh, you know, 
they're still in a position where they can win now. Uh, just a matter of finding, again, I guess the the right pieces to try to make it work. Uh, since it it seems like they they are going to commit to the core four at this point going into this next season. So it uh, seems highly unlikely that uh, anybody's going to get traded now at this point. Uh, I guess especially seeing that uh, you know, Shanahan has made it clear that uh, that's not going to happen. So. Yeah. Um, and, and even tree living too. He said it, it's, you gotta think outside the core four. It's the Toronto 23, basically. And he's not mm-hmm. wrong. It takes a team to win the cup. Yeah. I mean, you gotta have a team that's four lines deep, solid defensive depth, uh, and of course solid goaltending. And, uh, that's going to be the kind of roster that Kyle Dubas, you know, attempted to kind of create in Toronto. And now he's going to th- get the opportunity to do that with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Again, another one of the worst kept secrets in all of hockey. Again, the, the moment that Kyle Dubas, uh, was out in Toronto, everybody was linking him to the Pittsburgh, uh, Penguins job. And lo and behold, he has now been named the president of hockey operations for the Penguins. Uh, Yet to name an official GM at this point, but uh, you know it feels uh, you know almost evident that uh, he's going to be poaching more of the staff from Toronto, be it uh, like the sports science and the analytics guys. But uh, I think also uh, you know the talk of uh, his former assistant GM uh, Brandon Pridham, uh, you know that he may well be coming over at this point, uh, but still yet to be determined who the GM is going to be. But I mean, Dubas is going to be the guy making the moves doesn't matter who it is that he hires a GM. I mean, it's going to be just like Shanahan in uh, Toronto. I think, you know, I feel like true living is going to kind of be a, a pawn at this point. And uh, I feel like the same thing with uh, whoever Dubas hires as GM in Pittsburgh. I mean, Dubas will make the moves. Yeah. And he's already come out and pretty much said that that's going to be the case. Absolutely. So, and a little more flexibility that seems like uh, uh, he's going to have, you know, as far as, uh, you know, obviously a lot of work with trying to shed some bad contracts. But uh, uh, when you look at the the cost of the the core four, and I guess the call it the core five, if you throw Morgan Riley in uh, with, uh, uh, with Toronto against, uh, you know, the core that Pittsburgh has, I mean, albeit Pittsburgh's core is uh, substantially older at this point as, uh, you know, Crosby and Malkin are entering the, uh, you know, the back nine of their career. Uh, but Pittsburgh's in a position where they could make some, some moves to, you know, improve this roster. And, uh, Dubas is a guy that, uh, can find those hidden gems that, uh, might be able to, you know, fill the holes that the, this, this roster clearly needs, you know, the, the bottom six on this Pittsburgh roster was abysmal and atrocious, but uh, of course Dubas known for uh, making some very notable bad deals. Uh, I mean, Peter Morazic, Matt Murray, they all come to mind. So, yeah, I mean, you gotta, I, I, he's got a lot of work cut out for him. Let's be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Hextall, whether you are the train of thought, kind of like me, where they changed the MO on his job on him, uh, he still did a horrible job, no matter what. It, granted, they did kind of change, I, I feel like they pulled the rug out from under him. It was kind of um, feel free to trade away one of the big three, Latang, Malkin, or Crosby, and let's get this team going again. And then they said, wait, wait, no, you can't do that. 
there's still signs that Ron Hexall was a woefully unprepared GM. Uh, and he saddled this team with some very bad contracts and got rid of some very serviceable players. Uh, Jake Gensel being one of them. Um, he, there's a lot of work to be done here. I'm not willing to bet against Crosby. Uh, he had another point per game season last year. Uh, Malkin was as healthy as he's ever been. He played almost all 82 games, uh, Latang is Latang. Uh, he had another s- stroke scare, which does make me pause. But there's three guys you can kind of build a team around, or at least build the cornerstone of a team around. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, they have no prospect pool. It has been uh, traded away year after year after year. But again, it's to be expected because you've got a guys that you're trying to go for every year. But what do you do? You trade away your prospects and picks. So now you got to get creative and I'm curious to see what Kyle Dubas can do because the kid gloves are off now uh, in Toronto. He kind of came in after Lou Lamorello, not saying Lou's a good GM because I don't think he is. Um, I <laughs> think a lot of the moves that were made were good moves in general because they made them by a committee before <laughs> Dubas took over as a sole GM. Um, plus you're given John Tavares, Austin Matthews, William Nylander, Mitch Marner, and Frederick Anderson as a goalie who's really good in the regular season. I mean, that's that's good foundation right there for a team. And Dubas didn't fuck it up, which is a sign, you know, which is you could be a good goal, good side of a GM who's at least competent by not fucking something up that's good. Uh, yeah, that's uh, you know. A great way to begin. Yeah. So uh, I'm just curious because Pittsburgh has no goaltending. Uh, Tristan Jari is horrible, and Casey DeSmith is worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jari's UFA. So, Jari's uh, UFA. They have a void, and uh, DeSmith's not a guy that can uh, shoulder the load of a uh, a starter. So I wouldn't even want him as a backup, honestly. <laughs> uh, now that could be also be a reflection of the team. So there's a lot of holes in this team and there's a lot, again, there's a lot of work to be done and I am curious to see what Dubas does do. It's going to be interesting again, that uh, it might be, you know, a couple of seasons where they're, they're kind of middling at that point. But uh, again, Crosby's 35, Malkin's 36. Again, if they're going to do something with these players uh, before they uh, choose to hang up the skates, uh, I mean, you know, the clock's ticking. They got to do something at this point. But uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting off season for Pittsburgh. And uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see uh, how he fares uh, outside of the, the bright lights in Toronto at this point. And uh, I know there's much that's been made of uh, ooh, the rivalry now that Toronto and Pittsburgh are going to have a, they don't play in the same division uh, B uh, the likelihood that they're going to meet in the playoffs is slim to none. So, uh, but I mean, I, I think I, I can see where, yeah, the comparisons of, uh, how Dubas does in Pittsburgh versus tree living in Toronto. I mean, that's going to be bantied bantered about, uh, all season long at this point, but you want know, to call it, uh, some sort of rivalry that's going to develop. I, I failed to see that happening. The interesting thing is going to be how, what Dubas does on the hockey ops in general. Yes. Because the, 
famously how much he built the Toronto Maple Leafs off the ice. Um, I, that's what I'm curious to see is what he does in Pittsburgh, how he starts spending the Fenway Group's money. Basically. And we know they have plenty of money to uh, to spend at this point. And uh, as it stands right now, uh, the Penguins with a uh, $20 million in uh, cap space. So uh, we shall see how that gets used. So, so going from one Toronto reject to another here, uh, of all people to uh, reemerge onto the hockey scene, none other than former Toronto head coach Mike Babcock, of all people. Uh, uh, kind of a surprise candidate that has emerged uh, and expected to be named the head coach in Columbus uh, when uh, uh, his official paycheck uh, ends in Toronto. Of course, uh, he signed that eight-year deal, so he's still been getting paychecks from Toronto, even though he hasn't coached since uh, 2019 at this point. Uh, so expected to be named head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, again, a very uh, interesting, somewhat controversial choice, but uh, you know, coming back to the NHL after a, a brief stint uh, with a Canadian University hockey. Man, talk about timing. I mean, coming back after all the Kyle Beach stuff really makes Mike Babcock seem like not a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the talk of uh, you know both Joel Quenville and Stan Bowman uh, trying to engage with Gary Bettman to try to get reinstated uh, to be back behind the bench in Quenville's case and uh, back in the front office in uh, Bowman's case. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the transgressions and accusations of uh, Mike Babcock and his uh, his uh, mental abuse of players, uh, you know, brought up by uh, the likes of Johan Franzen and Mitch Marner that, uh, yeah, all of a sudden now he doesn't sound like so bad of a guy, apparently. No, he was just a, a old school yeah. coach caught in a new age changeover. And, you know, you can learn. Out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's going to be curious because uh, Columbus sucks. They're not yeah. even a team that a good coach, I think, would push them over the edge. Um, they've got no goaltending. Besides Wierenski, uh, they've got no defense. Uh, Johnny Goudreau, if he continues on the trajectory he's on, is not a great hockey player. Uh, Patrick Lane is not the sniper. Everyone said he's going to be. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, players coming up short for Columbus. And I just don't see how you get a guy who's just going to piss off your players to push them further along. Um, now, saying that, John Tortorella did. They, Columbus was a decent hockey team when John Tortorella was there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe having a coach like Mike Babcock, who's very structured, very rigid on everything he does, maybe that will bring a little bit back to Columbus. Um, but they've got so far to go that a coach is not going to push them over. I could see, I mean, they have nowhere to go but up considering how poor of a season that they had this past year or so. And I can see a little bit of that dead cat bounce happening where uh, Babcock's able to get some blood from a stone and make this team, you know, at least decent, uh, you know, something that's maybe worth watching. I I highly doubt that uh, there's 
he's going to do anything to make them a contender, but at least make them watchable. But uh, like you said, uh, I mean, those old school type type of coaches, uh, they just have a very short shelf life as far as uh, getting anything out of their players before the message just blanks out and uh, the players start to tune out at that point. So, so I could see a season, maybe a season and a half where you see a bit of improvement out of Columbus, but uh, looking big picture again, yeah, I, I, I don't see where he's the guy, but you made mention of the number of pieces that uh, Columbus has that uh, just seems like kind of a hodgepodge uh, team. Uh, well, add another hodgepodge piece to that team uh, as uh, Columbus in what seemingly seems like a win now mode uh, goes out and gets of all people, Ivan Provorov from Philadelphia. So uh, which actually is a very solid deal as far as uh, transactions go uh, for the first deal for a uh, new general manager, Daniel Briere in uh, parting with a player that very clearly wanted out in Philadelphia and uh, you know, enables to them to pick up some assets at this point. Uh, so a three team deal between uh, the flyers, the blue jackets and the LA Kings who are going to retain about 30% of uh, Provorov's salary for these next two years that he's going to be in Columbus. Uh, uh, the Kings uh, or the flyers get a first round pick this year, second round pick next year from Columbus. Uh, they take on Cal Peterson's uh, bad deal from the Kings, uh, as well as getting uh, uh, Sean Walker and a AHL minor leaguer. Uh, again, Philly's in a position where they can take on some bad contracts. Uh, you know, maybe be the next Phoenix because uh, they're they're nowhere close to contention. So really, doing anything to try to bolster their assets at this point. Uh, again, I think this is a, a good deal in getting rid of a player that very clearly wanted out in Philly, but uh, you know what Columbus thinks they're actually getting in Provorov. I mean, uh, Provorov was good in 2018-19 and in 2019-20 simply because he had Matt Niskanen as his, his partner. Provorov's a guy that you think is a top line blue liner, but only if he's got somebody beside him that can carry him. If he's the man on that first line, first D pairing, you're not going to get what you think you're getting. Well, see, there's one thing that Columbus has in their advantage is they've got uh, Wierenski ahead of him. So if they're smart and they put Provorov on the second pairing as a middle pair guy, he might just be decent. Um, now you alluded to, it seems like Provorov for the past few years has been, like you said, trying to get out of Philly. Um, and as you know, when Philly doesn't want you, they send you to Columbus. <laughs> so, um, yep. Yeah, I'll be curious to see. Feeling, yeah. <laughs> I'll be curious to see how Provorov does do in Columbus because he won't be the guy. Um, and that's what Philly thought he was going to be was the guy. And he also doesn't have to lug around a boat anchor named, uh, oh, I just lost it. Tony D'Angelo? Yes, that one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and I, I think that his expectations in Columbus are going to be lower. His uh, The ask of him is, will also be lower. So, therefore, he will flourish more in Columbus. And not really flourish, just his his play will be more aligned 
along the lines of his what he can do skilled set wise and all of a sudden he's going to be a decent hockey player again mm-hmm. and a move that uh, the kings get involved in this there's a, a salary cap clearing move again purging the cal peterson contract uh, sending that off to philly and that kind of creating the room for the contract you made mention of uh, uh the signing of vladislav gavrikov who they acquired from columbus uh, at the deadline again two years uh 5.87 million uh, for the next two years uh, the average annual value a guy that uh, you know suddenly was positioned as one of the choice trade deadline acquisitions and actually fared quite well in a Kings uniform and uh, the Kings wanting to kind of keep him around and, uh, you know, at a reasonable enough of a ticket there where, you know, it's, uh, you know, maybe a a mild overpay, but again, at two years, again, something that uh, the Kings can certainly stomach. And like you said, Gavrikov positioning himself for potentially an even bigger payday uh, in a couple of years when uh, the cap is supposed to be substantially more. Yeah, see, this is this is the, the deal I expect a lot of players to make. Just a two-year deal. Like, get this year out of the way, get next year out when the cap does go up, and then when it's up, hopefully eight to ten million the following year. Not all at once, but through the next two years, then you can try to get your big payday. Yeah, uh, Gavrikov, I don't think is that kind of guy who's going to get a huge payday, but he's kind of that. Uh, I test darling where he looks great. And with the Kings, like you said, he was better. He, he played fine in Columbus, uh, mm-hmm. but the analytics kind of said he wasn't amazing. And then in the Kings organization, he was good. He was very serviceable and what they were asking him to do do was well within his skill set, And he did a good job. So he does fit well with the Kings, and I think that's a good risk to take for this two years and then reevaluate. Absolutely. Here again, whether he does get that big payday versus whether he deserves it, I think that's always the big question that kind of comes up with uh, a lot of these uh, these contracts, especially for uh, uh, defensemen uh, of the, the ilk of uh, a guy like Vladislav Gabrikov. So, so I guess that's... Again, something that uh, remains to be seen at this point. Uh, So going from deals that are short term at this point uh, to kind of the opposite of that, uh, Montreal signing a Cole Caulfield to a longer term extension. Of course, a maxi eight year deal uh, going from uh, his RFA and uh, now seven point seven five million again, locking up both Caulfield and then uh, Nick Suzuki the year before. Uh, again, this is a deal that uh, again Montreal has to make to again keep him from uh, flying elsewhere. But uh, you know, a, a good solid part of you know, what's expected to be their future going forward at this point. Again, uh, uh, Suzuki and Caulfield, two guys that have uh, maintained excellent chemistry in the very short time that they've had at this point, and uh, you know the guys that uh, Montreal's going to build on. Yeah, this one's a little head scratcher for me. Um, I don't know why Cole Caulfield signed for eight years. Um, I it was a great win for the Habs. Uh, Absolutely, you know, he's going. To, I think he's going to be a thirty goal scorer, maybe even flirting with that forty goals at time. Uh, health does kind of raise an issue because he is kind of an undersized guy, uh, and he's last year. I think they sh- they shut him down because of his shoulder, and they definitely made it 
known that if they were in a position to challenge for the playoffs, they probably wouldn't have shut him down. But they had that luxury to shut him down early, get the surgery in, get a good offseason in. But the year before, I think he lost time due to concussions. So his health is already kind of a question mark. But he's also, this is going to be his third full year. So, um, good gamble for the Habs at a good price. And, you know, as much as I don't think he should have, you know, Caulfield does get some stability and he knows where he's at for the next eight years, at least pay wise. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, again, great deal for Montreal and very much in market with a lot of his uh, draft classmates from uh, the class of uh, 2019. Again, looking at the extensions that the likes of uh, Jack Hughes, Dylan Cousins and uh, Matt Boldy have all signed at this point. Again, very much right in line with uh, with those particular deals. So. um, So, yeah, I think yeah, a great signing uh, by by Montreal. So agreed. Absolutely. So um, looking ahead to the free agent class, of course, uh, it's looking a little kind of like slim pickings when uh, you know one of your, your top uh, players that you're looking at signing are the likes of uh, Tyler Bertuzzi and Ryan O'Reilly at this point. But uh, one of those uh, prize UFAs, uh, of course, uh, Patrick Kane, of course, uh, dealt from Chicago to the Rangers at the deadline and looked uh, rather ineffective in a Rangers uniform. Uh, well, we, we, we knew why that was uh, with all the, the lingering hip issues. Well, uh, Kane's going to be out four to six months now after having a hip resurfacing procedure, uh, something to kind of uh, help to clear up some of the, uh, the bone spurs that have uh, you know formed in those uh, in that hip joint. And uh, yeah, he's going to be on the shelf for a while. So, uh, you know, Interesting to see uh, who's going to want to take a flyer on Kane once he's healthy. Uh, very much something that we'll expect to see something like a, a one-year show-me kind of a deal where, uh, you know, best-case scenario, he misses the first month of the season uh, or he, he could be out until uh, till the holiday season. Yeah, I mean, he'll get a deal. Uh, it's Patrick Kane. His Definitely. name alone buys him that. Um, I, I think that his it's funny because all last year is that well, it's not hip issue. It's not hip issue. It's not hip issue. Oh, it is a hip issue. Yeah. I mean, you watch him play. It clearly was, we may be dumb fans, but we're not that dumb. We know what it is. <laughs> um, I think that, yeah, show me deals. Exactly. It. And I just, I think Patrick Kane is, he's on that, I mean, he's he's on the back nine for sure, but I think he's over that hump, and I think his his trajectory is very much on the downward spiral. I don't think he's like Sidney Crosby or Malkin, where they're kind of you know they are tailing off, but it's kind of a slow descent. I I see him; he's he's heading for bedrock pretty quick. Um, that could be wrong, and maybe maybe that hip is more of an issue than I uh, I think, but. Uh, I just I I don't see him in the league in two years, maybe even three. Three if he's lucky. Two for I mean, yeah. I just I don't know. I I think like you said, if, if Patrick Kane was high on your list of free agents to sign, um, it just shows how thin that free agency is. And, and you know, you said Tyler Bertuzzi not to change the subject, but it sounds like Boston's making a real big push to try to sign him. Wow. Um, Interesting. So. You know, Patrick Kane, uh, again, I, that ship has 
left port a long time ago. Well, and really at this point for Patrick Kane, again, having spent, uh, again, 15, 14 plus seasons uh, in the Chicago organization, you know, the last portion of last year uh, with uh, New York, uh, you know, really the only thing left for him to accomplish in his career is to pass both Mike Madonna and Brett Hull uh, in the chase for uh, most points by an American born player. Uh, Kane right now sitting with uh, 1,237. Uh, that puts him doing quick math. He's 154 points behind Brett Hull for uh, most all times. So, uh, you know, realistically, I could see him getting that in three seasons. I mean, if he really turns the Jets on two, but, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, like you said, Scott, uh, his best seasons, I think, are behind him at this point. And uh, I really think that's about the only reason uh, for him to hang on at this point. Uh, you know, there's really not much else to do uh, with his career. Just at this point, he's just padding his resume. Yeah, and he's, he doesn't even have any much to prove on his resume. He's a Conn Smythe winner. He's a uh, Stanley Cup winner, multiple Stanley Cup winner. I think the only thing he hasn't won is a gold medal. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's a pretty damn healthy resume. Uh, what else is there to cover here this week? I guess uh, give a quick shout out to the uh, Quebec Ramparts, uh, the winners of the Memorial Cup this past weekend, uh, claiming a five nothing victory over the uh, Western League champion Seattle Thunderbirds. Uh, uh, Quebec didn't quite make it a clean sweep. Uh, they did lose to Peterborough, but uh, still advanced to the uh, the final game and uh, again rather handily beat the Thunderbirds. Uh, so uh, Patrick Waugh, uh, his second. Memorial Cup as a coach of Quebec, uh, having done the same thing in uh, 2006 on a, on a roster that uh, I believe featured Alexander Radulov, if uh, my memory serves me correct. So, but so, congrats to uh, Quebec. Yeah, and uh, also congrats to Patrick Waugh, whose name was taken off of the running for the Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the the chase for uh, who will be the next uh, Rangers head coach continues at this point. Uh, so we, we, we know Patty was not going to be that guy. So uh, what do you think? Is that about it? I think it's time to go watch some hockey. I think it just about is. We're just about ready for face off of game three of the Stanley cup final. So that's all the time that we have for this week. Be sure to tune in to just another hockey podcast again next week. While you're at it, fans, be sure to subscribe, rate and review just another hockey podcast, wherever it is that you listen to them at whatever your podcast platform of choice is. Be sure to follow us on ye old Twitter at just a hockey pod is our handle there as well as on our individual accounts. You'll find me at SuperDaveTC. And I'm at, at S underscore Mackin. And that'll do it. Uh, get out there and enjoy Game 3 and Game 4 of the Stanley Cup Final. Again, tonight, uh, Thursday, as we record for Game 3, Saturday night for Game 4 from Sunrise. This has been just another hockey podcast. Uh, my name is Dave Block. And I'm Scott McIntyre. We'll see you again next week, listeners, and until then, happy hockey, everyone. 